All right, welcome back to the DC Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Parkinson. We're here at the Hyrick House in DuPont Circle, once again with producer Panama. And this is part two of my interview with Hari Kirtan Das. Welcome back to the show. I'm pleasure to be back. It's been two weeks for everybody, but it's been about 20 minutes for us. So it's kind of well, nice. Well, you know, we were talking about the uh, elasticity of the experience of time. That's right. That's right. Um, so I uh, want to start off and uh, talk a little bit about uh, yoga teacher training programs. Um, I have one coming up. You have one coming up. Um, it's actually kind of interesting. I have a 200-hour one that, that I'm doing at Vita um, coming up uh, in January, and you have a 300-hour coming up also in January. Not at Vita, but a 300-hour. Not at Vita, yeah. Yes. No, it's in my own space. Uh, we're actually going to start on February 28th, and we'll run through September. And this is a 300-hour advanced yoga teacher training program. Uh, this is uh, the second one I'm running on my own after having been a guest faculty member on so many other teacher trainings for a while. And uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. The first experience of it was wonderful. I had a really great group. I have a few people uh, that I'm really looking forward to working with signed up so far. And so if anyone would like complete information about my upcoming training, you can go to my website, harikirtan.com, and all the information is there. Cool. What can give us a because I think maybe a lot of teachers don't understand the purpose of a 300 hour training. You know, the way you've done the 200 hour, people hear about okay, there's 200 hours or 300 hours, there's 500 hours. Like, tell us why the actual, like, why the 300 hour is so important um, to keep continuing your education. Well, or at least what are you going to cover that they didn't sure. get into? Yeah. Well, you know, a 200 hour is a real good introduction, like an undergraduate degree, and then. After that, and you get a little bit of teaching experience, um, you find out where you would like to focus. From a business standpoint, in marketing, we have this idea of meaningful differentiation. One of the interesting things about the yoga industry is that the product that the yoga industry manufactures is yoga teachers. And this is one of the strange realities of uh, yoga economics in mm -hmm. a modern secular commerce driven yoga environment as opposed to you know spiritual ashram yoga situation and <clears throat> one of the challenges now for yoga teachers is that there are so many yoga teachers how do you differentiate yourself how do you learn what your unique gift is that you can offer the world through yoga. So an advanced yoga teacher training should be a teacher training that gives you the kind of knowledge and skills that will help you to really define yourself as a yoga teacher and make a, make a, make a, a difference in your quality of your teaching, really raise the level of your teaching so that there's a quantitative difference in terms of what you have to offer and a qualitative difference of how uh, capable a teacher you are. Mm -hmm. So uh, my training is divided into uh, four components. We're going to begin with the physical practice, uh, working on sequence design and uh, individual poses and such like that. And that'll include the anatomy portion. I have a wonderful guest teacher coming in to do the anatomy portion. Then we'll move to more metaphysical practices. I also have a wonderful 
pranayama teacher coming in uh, to work with us on, on that level of uh, metaphysical stuff. Then psychological practices um, will work with some uh, specialties in terms of meditation. And then finally, the intellectual and business practices. So there will be a, a strong emphasis on how do you present yourself to the world as a yoga teacher? How do you communicate the kind of yoga teacher that you are to the world so that you get the kind of engagements that you want to get? And, you know, the way I see the yoga industry moving is two areas of specialization, bringing yoga to places that and people that don't have easy access to yoga or that need yoga in a particular way as opposed to garden variety vinyasa yoga at a yoga studio you know there's a place for that uh, i i teach actually a regular vinyasa class i tried to get the studio to call it garden variety yoga um or garden variety vinyasa class i love that name yeah they wouldn't go for it i couldn't understand why um so I asked, well, how about generic vinyasa? <laughs> and they I actually like that name better. Yes. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I thought that might even be better, but they didn't go for that either. Yeah. Um, anyway, but my point is that um, the reason you take an advanced yoga teacher training is so that you can uh, deepen your knowledge, expand your skills, and really define yourself in a, a particular way as a yoga teacher so that you know that what you're offering as a yoga teacher is going to appeal to a particular kind of person with a particular need who's looking for uh, to solve a particular problem let's say you know or is looking for a, a very specific outcome mm -hmm. and you're uniquely positioned to help them realize that outcome so that's so that's why you take an advanced teacher training whereas a 200 hours like you're inspired you know, your yoga practice has done so much for you, and now you want to share that with other people, so you have to start somewhere. So you start with the 200-hour, and the 200-hour gives you a really good um, overview of the yoga practice and teaches you the difference between practicing yoga and teaching yoga, which when I work, I don't know, you probably have the same experience, but, you know, the first time someone who's been practicing yoga actually stands up and sees what the teacher sees, mm -hmm. it's a total revelation yeah it's great it's so it's, it's a it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing to watch yeah um and that's why i also i also and i <clears throat> insist on my um yoga teacher trainees observing classes as a, as a requirement to graduate because i think when we're we're in a yoga class and you know first you a couple yoga classes of course you're looking around other people but then eventually after you've taken 10 20 30 yoga classes you're just focusing on what you're doing and listening to the teacher and after a couple of years of that, that's what you get used to. And then, you know, when you go do yoga to your training program, you actually sit at the back of the class and you actually watch the class and you're like, what the fuck are these people doing? <laughs> I had no idea. Exactly. There could be so many different variations exactly. of downward facing dog. That person over there, what are they doing? That person, is that her underwear? Like, I mean, you're just like, you go, you, you just notice an awful lot of stuff and the, you get the feeling for like, okay, this is what the teacher sees. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah. you see a very different class when you're not mm -hmm. participating in it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, when I'm teaching, um, you know, I don't, I do a little bit of demoing in the room, but the only time I'm in the front of the room is when I want them to see me. Otherwise, I'm walking around the room and I'm usually positioning myself where they can't see me, where I'm the disembodied voice and they're just focusing on my voice. And, you know, I ask the, people who are observing my class, the teachers in training, or, you know, if they're teachers already in the advanced class, um, I ask them to walk around the room with me. 
because I want them to see what I'm seeing. Mm. That's and, good. Yeah, I you like know. That. Uh, so I, you know, I ask them to come early so they can see my preparation for the class because for us the class starts before the class starts. Mm-hmm. And then once I get up, they know that they also are supposed to get up and they're going to stay X length from me and they're going to have their head on a swivel, look around the room, see what I see, look to me to see what I'm looking at and if I want you to look at something in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you know. I like that a lot. I, that's, I, I think I'll steal that. I like that a lot. Please because, do. Because um, I, actually, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that, I actually do the same exact thing. Mm-hmm. I intentionally position myself in places where people can, can't see me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I never demo in a class. And furthermore, um, I, I always, I never demo because I want people to listen. Mm-hmm. We spend all day using our eyes for everything. Yeah, that's right. And I want people to listen. So if I if I'm explaining a pose, if I can't explain, for example, this is one that uh, that a lot of people have problems with. I'll say, come into a tabletop position. Extend your right leg straight back behind you. Spin your right heel to the floor. Reach your right hand up towards the sky. Mm-hmm. So your left knee is still on the ground. I want you to kickstand your left foot behind you. Right, so you're in a supported side plank, and I want you to stand up on your left knee and reach both your arms up towards the sky. This is called gate pose. I have so many times I will ask people to stand up on their left knee and reach their arms up towards the sky, and they look around like, what? And mm-hmm. like, I, I, and I'll say it again. Stand up on your left knee, reach your arms up towards the sky. It's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Like In other words, I will keep repeating it until everybody does it right. because I want you to he- listen yeah, because so much time during the day is spent seeing things and reacting to what we're seeing. And the other part of it is we're seeing and reacting to things and we're also listening to other things. We're not really listening, though. It's just background noise. Right. Whether it's music or whether it's you know the outside or whether it's another person talking to us. So there's disconnects where our eyes are doing all the learning and our ears are doing nothing at all. Mm-hmm. And it, it just gets tangled. You don't know which it, it's distraction. Yeah. I think so that's when you actually, get to a, so you get yoga class, I want you to listen. I want you to focus mm-hmm. right on my voice and do that. Yeah. Not I, because I'm an egomaniac, but because it's going to help you focus. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that's actually part of the class is, uh, hearing, you know, hearing is, is, is actually the first process of bhakti yoga and if we come into a class and we start hearing and translating what we hear into action, that's very different than what we do most of the day, which is use our eyes, see everything, and all that sound uh, just kind of just zips by without our really paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. So paying attention to what we are hearing is part of the class so i think you're really right in in, in approaching it be. that way it's got to be and when I, when I that's what i use the drishti for you know for my from for, for what i use the drishti for is to put your eyes someplace to keep a line of sight but without analyzing information that comes in through your eyes to yeah. keep a line of sight and then feel what the rest of your body is doing mm-hmm. hear the cues feel so especially in something like triangle where you would look up at the hand that's pointing up towards the sky, but you're looking up past your hand, but the action is Is away behind you is behind you. And so that's the idea. It's proprioception Mm and knowing where your body is in space, which is very, very important to things like balance, Mm -hmm. um, preventing falls. I mean, you know, this is stuff you have to do because we're so used to literally walking around and doing everything's in front of our eyes. 
mm-hmm. without paying any attention to things that are behind us or things that are to the side of us. And when you do that, your focus becomes 50 degrees in front of you. And you miss the other 300, right? And I don't know, what is it, 365 degrees? Yeah, you miss yeah. the whole other 315 degrees behind you. Mm-hmm. And that's like five-sixths of your world that you're missing because you're just looking in that 50-degree angle. And that's the first step of consciousness expansion, you know, knowing where your body is in space and not necessarily just the part of your body that you're seeing, but really feeling where you are in space. A lot of times, in, in some poses, where I'm going to do that sort of cueing. The first cue will be feel the right side of your body. Now feel the left side of your body. Now I know everybody's going to remember which is the right hand and which is the left leg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot, a lot of times half the you know room first has to think which is the right hand when you say move your right hand like this or move your left foot like that. Yeah. So uh, It's breaking habits. Yeah. Right? That's what we're doing. Yeah, because people will move the first thing that they're accustomed to moving no matter what you said Mm -hmm. um and so you know if you if you reorient people to knowing which side is which remembering which is front and which is back and then doing things to help them expand their awareness of where their whole body is in space yeah that's your first step to expanding your consciousness you know it's 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 a a first material step to just get that orientation 360 degrees like you said and then from there that's one of the ways that the physical practice takes us to the metaphysical practice absolutely absolutely um so we do these teacher training programs Mm -hmm. right i'm doing 200 hour you do a 300 hour uh i grew up in new jersey Right. What you part can, of New Jersey? I grew up in southern New Jersey in a town called Moorestown in South New Morristown. Jersey. Morristown. No, Morristown. Oh, Morristown. South, South oh, South. South. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was going to say Morristown. That's further, further That's north. up north, yeah. Yeah, That's right. Morristown. So, okay, I don't know that. So what are a couple of guys from New Jersey, New York doing, teaching, <laughs> right, this practice that started in India 7,000 years ago? Right. Right, which kind of leads us into this idea of cultural appropriation, mm-hmm. um, kind of the modern attitudes about yoga, how yoga is portrayed in the press. Right. That's, that's the that's the start button. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so this has become an area of um, a lot of sensitivity, which I think is a good thing. You know, at, at at first we have this court of you know relatively new phenomenon of yoga as a uh, fitness regimen, and all these yoga studios pop up and then we have this whole industry that builds up around it because now you have to have yoga clothes and yoga mats and um, and the studios show up in a particular part of town and you know now you have a particular demographic you know kind of person who takes yoga the kind of person who uh, the media reflects back to us as the kind of person who does yoga and it took a little while for there to be some sense of uh, recognition that yoga had been redefined and changed uh, in order to fit the desires of this particular demographic. And one of the things yoga tells us is that our desires, along with our aversions, are actually the obstacles to yoga. So when we 
reinvent yoga in accordance with our desires, we've actually pulled the rug out from under an essential yeah. part of yoga. So, um, the assumption is that yoga comes from India and that it, and, and, and uh, Hinduism is the religion of, the original religion of that area and that therefore somehow yoga comes from Hinduism. And the request is therefore made to respect yoga as the intellectual property of Hinduism uh, and become aware of the kind of assumptions we make that are part of our colonial heritage. You know, the, the phrase decolonize yoga, don't make yoga, uh, the practice of yoga a furtherance of a colonial presumption that we can just, as you know, Westerners, white people, uh, you know, appropriate what we like out of a culture and turn it into something that conforms to our desires as opposed to what its original intention is. Now, I think there's something to that. But I think there's also something missing from that. Because on the one side, you have people who want to take yoga and meditation and turn it into something that serves a Western sensibility. There's somebody who pops up on my Facebook feed now that's advertising yoga or meditation beyond OM. Forget this OM stuff. Use meditation as something that's going to make you successful in your business. All right, thanks a lot. Um, that's right. Let's get, for, forget all this spiritual stuff. Let's get real about yeah, our yoga. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's a pretty classic example of how yoga and meditation is taken out of its That would be original. a misappropriation. Yeah, that would yoga. be a very yes, yes. big misappropriation uh, when you just take the spirituality out of yoga because it's inherently a spiritual practice. And... You know, if you want to bring yoga into public schools, well, at least here, for the moment, we still have this thing called separation of church and state. So if you're teaching yoga in a public school, you have to take the spirituality out of it. Otherwise, you, know, you, you can't teach it. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you recognize it as a transcendental science, that is to say a spiritual science that does not come from any particular religion. Now that's a tricky uh, thing to do mm -hmm. in a public school situation, you know, because now uh, people who subscribe to a particular re religion where they hear in their church that yoga is Hinduism and Hinduism worships all these different gods and now my Christian children are being taught to worship a god with an elephant head and like, you know, et cetera. See, understandably, people will freak out. And then on the other hand, you may have someone who uh, advocates for yoga as part of Hindu culture and say, well, you can't teach it in the schools and take the Hinduism out of it because that's cultural appropriation. Uh, so now what do you do? You know, it's kind of a, a, a difficult situation because we know that yoga is really good for children. Right. And it would actually be great 
to have uh, children learning yoga in the school. Or yeah, in other words, what's going to be most, what's going to be more important for a child to succeed in this world? And I'm not, I'm not downplaying the, um, the importance of information, but really, like when we think about it, spending 20 minutes every day learning how to meditate or at least twice a week learning how to meditate has got to be just as important as learning what the capital of Paraguay is. What's the capital of Paraguay? I, think, I don't I th- even I think, know. I think it's I think it's Monte Vidalio. Okay. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like like that. Yeah, like, no, I totally agree. Like, so so in other words, if I learned to meditate when I was, you know, nine years old, like I would be remembering that just like that, just like I remember the capital of Paraguay, right? right? So like that's And it, kids can't concentrate. Yeah. You know, I mean And they're, they're gonna be thrown into a world where I mean, look, when we grew up People people don't remember this. When we grew up, you had a phone and you called somebody and you said you were going to be there on Thursday at 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. You went and you were there at 8 a.m. on Thursday. You didn't have the opportunity to pick up a phone and text them 30 minutes beforehand and say, you know what, I'm not going to be there. Right. Right. I mean, it was like you had to was, show up because you, you had, made the commitment. Because you be made there. the commitment. Yeah. Right. Like, but yeah. No, the, the situation. I mean, yeah, I, I'm a kid. I've got three networks two local channels, and the uh, public television. Exactly. That's yeah. it. That's the whole thing. That's what I got. Now, you got anything you want, anytime you want it, on every little device yeah. you know, uh, that you can put in your pocket. It and, is instant gratification as you could get. Right, and, and it's mass distraction. And this is terrible if you want to be someone who can actually concentrate on one thing at a time for any length of time. So having uh, kids learn how to do uh, yoga and meditation is extremely good idea as far as I'm concerned. Now, there, the original case a little while back, uh, I think it was the Encinitas School District. Yeah, it was in California. Right, yeah. in California. Um, yoga Alliance was a friend of the court for, for the side that wanted to have the yoga in the schools. And to me, it was just a turf battle. Um, and they actually knew me and they called me and asked if I could give them a philosophical basis for their uh, position. And I said, well, explain to me the rationale of what it is you're doing. And they explained it to me and I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not the guy because uh, what you're doing is wrong as far as I'm concerned. What you're doing is extracting the physical practice of yoga from its Uh, philosophical moorings which are spiritual in nature and so if the case you have to make is that yoga is not a spiritual practice you're talking to the wrong guy yeah i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be able to give you anything uh that will will substantiate that so what does yoga have to say about itself as a spiritual practice this is the thing that i think is missing from both sides in which case what i'm really saying is uh, both sides of the cultural appropriation argument are missing something important. Mm-hmm. If we are to take the yoga tradition at its word, yoga does not come from Hinduism. Because Hinduism and yoga come from the same place, the Vedas. Mm-hmm. The word Sanskrit word Veda means knowledge, and the Vedas are the first books on planet Earth. Where do the Vedas come from? Well, according to the Vedas, they are supernatural. They are not of this earth. The the Sanskrit word to describe the origin of the Vedas is aparushaya, which means a, not parushaya, from here. 
It's not from here. It's revelation. This is transcendental knowledge. Therefore, it originates in transcendence. You know, in our last show, we talked about uh, the Vedanta Sutra. How does the Vedanta Sutra begin? And I quoted that, uh, now try to understand Brahman, that from which all things proceed. The origin of everything is Brahman. The origin of yoga is also Brahman, because yoga is how you get there from here. Mm -hmm. We are given a map, a technology, you know, a, a way to get from material consciousness to spiritual consciousness. That's the actual point of yoga, and that's uh, what we're being asked to do. Well, if yoga originates in transcendence, then it is not something that evolves out of uh, mundane culture. It's not, some, it's not a human invention. And this is a really important question for anyone who wants to understand a yoga wisdom text. You have to ask yourself, where did these texts come from? Are these the products of uh, human speculation? And more to the point, the products of uh, human speculation from primitive civilizations. Because we like to think that 5,000 years ago, things were a little more primitive than they are now. We've made so much advancement and, you know... Information, information has changed. I don't think the human being has changed. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the information has changed. The technology has changed. Yeah. Uh, is this an improvement? Uh, well, yoga actually says no, that we are entering into a season of time where uh, things are actually getting worse rather than better. But I digress. We'll talk about Kali Yuga later. Well, yeah, no, let's, I mean, that's a good, that's a good way to start this. I mean, the only thing I would add to the cultural appropriation uh, sort of um, debate is that if you kind of look at the history of asana practice, just asana practice, mm -hmm. which is rather recent, even if you went back to, say, the first asanas, which are probably in the Hatha Yoga Pratipika, right, mm -hmm. which is 400 years old, Maybe, and they're just ways to sit, for the most part, except for that. Well, they have they have peacock pose in there too, right? So Mahasana yeah. rides in there as well. But like, they're just ways to sit and meditate for for the most part, or ways to strengthen your body. But we're not talking about warrior two, right? There is no, there are no, there are no splits. Like things like this are recent inventions, mm -hmm. right? Um, and a lot of that actually comes from gymnastics, right? Which is comes from Europe. Yeah. Uh, and which went to Great Britain and then went to India. And one of the great things that the first, you know, yogis of the early 20th century did was they took the gymnastics that they had at the YMCA. They brought them into, right, these 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 um, physical practices and they they added some of the other postures from Hatha Yoga and they added kind of their own stuff and they called it right. They called it Ashtanga. Or they called mm -hmm. it right. They, they they put Sanskrit to it, and so they appropriated right this Western gymnastics and for a specific purpose to rebel against right the colonialism of India, mm -hmm. right? And they made it their own. They made it their they made it Indian, or they made it their own part of their own culture. And so this idea of like whose is what. 
becomes very murky. It becomes very messy, yeah. It's very <laughs> murky. And it's, it's sort and it's sort of like this is mine, no, this is yours, you can't do this, you can't do that. And it's sort of like, well, you know, at the at, at some point you kind of have to say, like, well, yeah, that's that's not a cut and dried thing, right? The same thing happened with the harmonium, which is the standard instrument for accompanying Kirtan. Uh, the harmonium was invented in Europe. The British brought it to India because it's easier to bring a harmonium than a pipe organ. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was part of their attempt to convert the Hindus to Christianity. And what did the Hindus do? They said, oh, thank you very much. We will now appropriate this instrument and uh, integrate it into our own devotional musical tradition. And now if you want to get a good harmonium, you got to get it from India. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of this is a mashup of uh, stuff that came from the Hatha Yoga tradition, which if you look at the history, you also find that the Brahmins, the uh, guardians of Sanatan Dharma, which later became known as Hinduism, didn't really have a very high opinion of the tantric oh, yeah. uh, yogis and the hatha yogis, you know they were they well, were seen right. those, as like those are low those class are, operation. Those are the beggars, yeah, the beggars are the ones who are doing these poses as a way to show their faith in God. Yeah, right. They'll sit on one leg. The sadhus, right? Mm -hmm. They stand on one leg for twenty years at a time to show their devotion. Like that's that's the physical practice, and they're looked down upon. Right. And yeah. Yeah. The high class. This, it's it's basically uh, was considered low class religion, as opposed to <clears throat> excuse me high class religion, which involves study of the Vedas, sure, worship ritual. of the deities in the temples, and such mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. If you were a high class Brahmin, you know all the fire sacrifice rituals and such like that. And so what we so what we've inherited is is a mashup that cannot strictly be said to. Uh, be the intellectual property of Hinduism. And even from the spiritual philosophy standpoint, if we accept the spiritual philosophy as it presents itself to us, then we understand that this is something that originates in transcendence and comes to us through the Vedas, the Upanishads, uh, Bhagavad Gita, and subsequent literature which goes hand in hand with the historical development of Sanatan Dharma, which comes after the Mughal invasion of India to be known as Hinduism, which is actually the anglicized version of a Persian word, because that's what the Persians used to describe all the people that lived in the geographic area between the Indus or Sindhu river, mm -hmm. uh, on the other side of the river, uh, therefore Hindustan. Yeah. And eventually, in order to make a distinction between the occupying Muslims and the uh, practitioners of Sanatan Dharma, which, as a religion, is more varied than the three Abrahamic religions combined, yeah. um, you know, they started to use the word Hindu, and then the British show up, and they see the Muslims, and they understand what they are. And then they see everyone else, and it's like, whoa, baby, we don't know what this is. They call them Hindus, fine. We will also call them Hindus, just a nice, clean, simple umbrella term for all this craziness that we have actually no idea what the hell that is. Mm -hmm. And that's how the word Hindu comes into uh, the world's language. So, yeah, in other words, Christians have been Christians <clears throat> a lot longer than Hindus have been Hindus. Yeah, yeah, Ironically, by, by, right? by like 1,500 years. Yeah. 
<laughs> and yet we say Hinduism is the world's oldest religion. That's right. Well, That's right. actually, not That's right. really. Because for me, at least, I don't consider... You know, the argument is, well, it was Sanatana Dharma. I don't consider Hinduism as a organized religion, to the extent that you can even say it's an organized religion, uh, to be synonymous with Sanatana Dharma. Um, Break that down now for I'm us, gonna, yeah, yeah, I will. Uh, so Sanatana means eternal. And Dharma is actually a very complex word because its meaning will change according to the context in which it's being used. So there's several different ways to understand the word dharma. The first one is the essential nature of a thing. So the dharma of sugar is to be sweet. The dharma of a river is to flow. The dharma of the sun is to shine. If you take the shine away, it's not the sun. If you take the flow away, it's not a river. If you take sweet away, it's not sugar. So the essential nature of a thing, something that makes it what it is, is dharma. Another way to consider dharma is as the way to respond to your destiny so that what you do is in harmony with cosmic order. Um, righteous action is dharma. Um, and another way of thinking about dharma is uh, doing your duty. Mm -hmm. um, that's another way to understand it. You know, we're born into a particular circumstance and... Sometimes there's a duty that goes, an obligation that goes with that. Mm -hmm. And we may like it or we may not like it, but it's still our obligation. So those are a few different ways uh, to understand dharma. And the Bhagavad Gita is actually a book about dharma. Uh, it begins with dharma, the very first word spoken. The last instruction is also includes uh, dharma. What is the best dharma? What is the best way to respond to your destiny? Um, how can you uh, bring your nature into harmony with cosmic order as you move through the world? Um, anyway, so what is the eternal nature of a living being? So Sanatan Dharma means the eternal occupation of a living being. Well, a living being, according to this very same philosophy, may take birth in a Western body, in a Christian family in one life, may take birth in a Muslim family in the next life, may take birth in a Hindu family in another life, may take birth in an ant body in one life, or uh, a dog body in another life. I mean, you know anybody who looks like their dog? I mean, I, I, I'm actually one of those people that thinks that dogs and humans do have similar expressions. I'm not one of those people who actually think the dog looks like the human. But I, I see what you... you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we, 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 we uh, have an attraction for something that mirrors us, you yeah. know, so, so there's some similarity there. And the question is, well, you know, which way is the human going? Are they coming from the dog life or going to the dog life? You know, which mentality are they developing? So... Our eternal identity in yoga philosophy has nothing to do with our temporary birth, right. you know. And this is yoga philosophy 101. We're not these material bodies. We're eternal spirit souls. But it's also the first really, really challenging hurdle to get over because we're so identified yep. 
with these bodies. We're so attached. And the attachment to a particular identity, like being Hindu, uh, is what leads to the insistence on ownership mm-hmm. of a particular aspect of culture yeah. that may get exported or appropriated into another culture. So for me, the insistence of yoga as that yoga must be recognized as part of Hindu culture, uh, Hinduism's gift to the world, is not entirely accurate. You know, Hinduism comes from the same place yoga comes from. It comes from the Vedas. The Vedas originate in transcendence if you accept what the Vedas have to say about themselves. Right. You know, one of the things that people here in America don't get about International Day of Yoga is that the International Day of Yoga in America does not mean the same thing as it means in India. You know, this is an invention of the recent administration in the Indian government. That's correct. Yes. That is a great public relations yeah. uh, vehicle to uh, pump up the Indian ego, as far yeah, as I'm course, concerned. Of course, of course. Or as I like to put it, like this, is, you know, the Indian prime minister just came out, like I think it was a couple of years ago, I said, we, you know, we're, we're trying to take our yoga back. And, you know, I kind of was like chuckled and I was like, I was thinking to myself, well, you're not trying to take yoga back. What you're trying to do is take all the money we've made off of it back. <laughs> Like we've turned we've turned yoga into a product, and you want in on the deal, so make a better product. Right. You know what I mean. If there's going to be commercialism, then do a better product. Yeah. Like don't don't try to don't try to give me the you know because it, you know from my point of view, it's like the one one of the great things I love about yoga is that you know I don't I don't have to be from India to practice it. I don't have to be a Hindu to practice it. I don't have to be anything else except for the person that I am to practice it. Mm-hmm. Like there's no prerequisite to doing yoga. I don't. No, ha- I don't have to be baptized. Uh, you know what I mean. I don't mm-hmm. have to be circumcised. I don't have to do. I don't know any of these. Any of these things. Mm-hmm. I just have to have the willingness to want to focus, or the willingness to want to merge with a greater, with a greater oneness. Mm-hmm. Right. And if I have that, then that desire, then I can practice yoga. And that, to me, is the simplicity of it. That. I I can say that, yes, this is a gift from India. It came from the region of India. Right. This idea. But man, I mean, there are people all over the world trying to do this, even yeah. if they don't call it yoga. So now, now here's the other thing that gets lost in this. Anyone who was born into uh, or and then grew up in this particular culture has something really important to offer. And it's not just the decolonization of yoga or the political, the politicization uh, of yoga, uh, or even the sense of social justice. It's the culture itself. Uh, Someone who has grown up in a culture of yoga uh, can and should, I think, share uh, that cultural frame of reference that allows us to access the power of yoga, the ultimate spiritual power of yoga. In my particular line of uh, Gaudiya Vaishnava uh, Bhakti Yoga, the uh, founder of this line, Sri Chaitanya, 
specifically said that uh, someone who has had the great fortune to be born in India and therefore the recipient of this knowledge, which somehow or other landed on planet Earth on the Indian subcontinent, uh, they have a responsibility to give this knowledge to others. So in that respect, you can think of it as an Indian export. But what's being exported from India doesn't originate in India. And one who has had the good fortune to take their birth within a, a family that is already steeped in the culture of yoga can make a very, very valuable contribution to the yoga community that the Western yoga community ought to recognize and avail themselves uh, of. Uh, and that is the uh, transcendental culture of yoga. Mm -hmm. And I think that in our uh, preoccupation with mundane politics, uh, we, that can get lost in our preoccupation with the very uh, valuable and valid concerns for social justice. That can also get lost. Uh, you know, s uh, activism becomes spiritual when we add a spiritual component to it. It doesn't become spiritual just because we say so or because we think that's... Uh, progressive values are more spiritual than conservative or regressive or, um, you know, mm -hmm. such, such values. Um, so I'm, for one, a, a big advocate for the uh, spiritualization of culture in general, and I hope that the contribution of those who were brought up in a spiritual culture, and particularly the spiritual culture of yoga... Uh, share their experience of that culture uh, beyond just the uh, kind of socio-political aspect of who owns yoga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I th yeah, I'm. Uh, you know, if yoga for if yoga if concentration means that you do triangle pose, if concentration means that you do. Um, mantra, if, if concentration means that you are going out and working at a soup kitchen, like if that's yoga to you, like I, I don't, I don't see how that can be misappropriated. If that's the, if the goal is concentration, if the goal is emerging with well, so here's the thing. I, I break down yoga into two different kind of non, they're not, they're, they're not exclusive. Yoga on one hand, concentration in the, in the way that Patanjali would, would describe it in the Yoga Sutras, which is literally slowing the movements of the mind. If that's, that's one definition of yoga, right? Another kind of part portion of that in my mind is that merging yoga, the union part of yoga is merging with oneness or Atman is Brahman, right? Realizing the taking away the illusion that you are separate from everything else. If you just took the concentration part of the yoga without the other part of it, you can do that in many different ways. Um, and to me, um, that is that is always a nod to where it comes from. Hmm. If you're trying to, if you're if you're looking to still the movement of your mind, you're doing that practice that originated that Pat Patanjali wrote down 
2,000 years ago. You're actively trying to do that, mm. to, to my mind. Um, so in the, the and there's many different many different many different mm-hmm. and that's that's just one version of what we would define right. yoga as right we could spend all day well trying to find a comprehensive definition of yoga right <laughs> so in the Vedic tradition that yoga comes from there are three categories of knowledge knowledge of relationships knowledge of practices and knowledge of the ultimate goal and depending on which school of yoga, which angle of vision you're coming to yoga from, you're going to get a different understanding of what each of those are. And therefore, different conceptions of yoga uh, have different conceptions of what is the relationship, what is the practice, that, uh, uh, and, and what is the ultimate goal. A lot of us uh, assume that the ultimate goal of yoga uh, is the merging into oneness, And that's one school of yoga, or that's one school of Vedanta, to be technically uh, more uh, correct. Whereas the bhakti tradition that uh, I'm practicing within uh, says that that's not the ultimate goal. It's, it's uh, It's legitimate, but it's incomplete. Yeah, I love this. Keep going. There's there's more to it than that. Yeah. So in terms of knowledge of relationships we have to ask ourselves the question what is my relationship to my body what is my relationship to other people what is my relationship to the world what is my relationship to what is beyond this world the source of the world what is my relationship to reality and then the practice that you take up will be based on your understanding of what that relationship is and what's on the other side, the ultimate goal. So in uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, you uh, get left with kaivalya, isolation. Um, You get uh, sampragyata samadhi, which is you see the true nature of the self reflected in the calm pool of the still mind. Mm -hmm. And then asampragyata samadhi, which means you realize that you're not the mirror, you're not the mind, and the, you let go of the mind, and it fades off into the oblivion, merges back into the primordial soup of uh, pradhan from which it arose in the first place, and now you're left with your own pure consciousness. Mm-hmm. All right, now what? <laughs> now what do you do? That's right. Well, in... Uh, well, presumably nothing, because you're just... Well, Patanjali's system just kind of leaves you right there, and that's sort of the end. Now, in the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Krishna takes things further, because he speaks about the four different uh, paths of, traditional paths of yoga, Mm -hmm. karma yoga, uh, ashtanga, or uh, dhyana yoga, the yoga of meditation, jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge, and bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotional service. Mm -hmm. And his... uh, Instructions are that first you offer whatever you do to me. That's your karma yoga. The fulfillment of karma yoga then has this element of of devotion uh, when it's informed by knowledge. What is that knowledge? The knowledge is that there is a spiritual substratum of reality, Brahman. Uh, And that's an impersonal aspect so Krishna describes the uh, four traditional paths of yoga, uh, karma yoga, yoga of action, 
uh, dhyana yoga, the yoga of meditation, uh, bhakti yoga, yoga of devotion, and jnana yoga, the yoga of knowledge. And we begin with uh, action informed by an understanding that results in you make all of your actions, everything that you do becomes an offering to the Supreme Person. Vishnu specifically is uh, indicated in the verse. Then with dhyana yoga, the object of meditation is the param atma, that is to say the uh, Supreme Person within the heart of all beings. And later on, uh, Krishna will describe that there is a knower of the field, meaning the person within the body. But then there's also a knower of all fields, and that's the param atma, the paramount atma, the, the supreme person in all bodies. Mm -hmm. So now we have an interesting distinction between the lower self, which is our conditioned self, we identify as the mind and body, the higher self with a lowercase h, which is the pure spirit soul who is under the influence of illusion, that would be us. Mm -hmm. Then the third self is the higher self with capital H, uh, and that's not us. And the assumption, because of the pervasiveness of Advaita Vedanta, or absolute non-dualistic philosophy, mm -hmm. is that the higher self is us. And what we need to realize is the higher self, which is the same higher self as in all beings, or that we're all one. Mm -hmm. And that's not actually what the Bhagavad Gita is teaching. It's a way of interpreting the Bhagavad Gita that comes from a particular school of Vedanta. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at the text as it is, uh, it seems self-evident that there's a clear distinction being made between Krishna as the Supreme Person and everyone else. That happens as early as the fourth chapter, when uh, Krishna says, I, I taught the same system of yoga to the sun god a bazillion years ago. <laughs> and Arjuna says, hold the phone, bud. You're my cousin. I've known you my whole life. How is it possible that you could have, in the beginning of the universe, taught anything to anybody? And in essence, what Krishna says is, well, here's the thing. I'm God, and you're not. And so I remember that I did this, and even though we've been through many, many, many lives, I remember all those lives, and uh, you don't. And that's the difference between you and me. And if we're thinking that, well, Arjuna is the stand-in for us, and Krishna is the stand-in for our higher selves, and we're just having a conversation with ourselves, then how is it that the higher self ever came under the influence of illusion in the first place? So... Bhakti Yoga um, questions this assumption of it all ends up in an absolute oneness by asking the question, well, you know, if my true higher self is already liberated, then how did I get here? Who's having an illusion? You know, is, right. it, is it me? No, the very idea of a me is an illusion. So I can't be having an illusion. Is the higher self having an illusion? Well, the higher self can't be subject to illusion if it's the higher self. Right, but that I mean that's well the way they get around that right is that is that you it starts with the it's a creation the creation myth of it begins right so if you start with the oneness and then um, the material world comes into being it's the material world that clouds the oneness except there's right? no oneness anymore because now you got two ness 
Right, exactly. <laughs> but, well, but the idea is that the two-ness is an illusion, right? It's, well, it, is it, the material world real? Yes, it is real. Then, you got, then, then, then oneness is not real. Because now you've got a, a one, Brahman, and a right. two, the world. Now, what's the relationship between Brahman and the world? Right. Right. For well, so I, I think that you would you would argue if you were if you were in the true sort of like um, Vedanta field is that um, they are of one source and that you have uh, you have the material world and the material world is um, is is an illusion. Right. It's real. Its effects are real. But in terms of absoluteness, it is an illusion. <clears throat> That's the way I understand right. it, anyway. <laughs> so um, the good folks at Embodied Philosophy have a magazine called Tarka, mm-hmm. and it's coming out in both an online and a uh, print version, and their next new issue is specifically on bhakti, and they asked me to write something mm-hmm. for it, and so I wrote an article uh, called The Two Kinds of Oneness, and it goes into some detail about these exact philosophical yeah, arguments. The whole, the, yeah, the, the whole dual, duality, non-duality thing is, yeah, keep going. Right. Yeah. So, so anyway, there's, uh, the point here is simply that there's another way of looking at things yeah. in terms of what is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal to merge into the undifferentiated oneness of being? Well, that's one possible goal, and it's certainly a better goal than just continuing with mundane material existence. Is the goal to realize the paramatma within the heart of all beings, which is the object of meditation for Patanjali. That's who he's talking about when he talks about Ishvara, and Ishvara as the object of meditation through the sound Om. Or is the objective to have a personal relationship with the personal form of the Godhead, you know, right. the person, the one person who is uniquely qualified to hold the position of the supreme being or, or God. Uh, is it possible to have a relationship of love with the personal form of reality itself? Mm-hmm. So, so you've got some options here. So, so it's, it's not just a uniform thing there. And, and the, uh, Srimad Bhagavatam, the book I spoke about in the, our previous episode, mm-hmm. uh, which we uh, studied every morning in the ashram, describes that these three aspects of the absolute truth, Brahman, the uh, undifferentiated oneness of being or the substratum of reality, um, Paramatma, the localized aspect of the supreme being uh, distributed everywhere and yet being one person, uh, and Bhagavan, the personal form of God. Uh, they're all one, and yet they're all different. And so we have uh, a description of the relationship between uh, the various aspects of the absolute truth and the material world that we find ourselves in by virtue of the uh, proposition that the absolute truth has unlimited energies, unlimited inconceivable energies, and those energies that can, can be transformed. So the material world in the Vedanta Sutra is described as a product of a transformation of energy, spiritual energy to material energy. 
one way to think about this is we have Einstein's uh, famous theorem, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass uh, times the speed of light squared. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that explains uh, energy. Well, you could reverse engineer that equation to get something that is like this idea of transformation of energies that creates the material world. M, matter, equals energy times the speed of light negative squared. The material world is a super, super, super slow down vibrational rate of spiritual energy. So that's not exactly in, you know, there's mm -hmm. always, there was always a problem with analogies, but that at least gives you the idea of how uh, the Vedanta Sutras themselves describe the relationship between spirit and matter. In Advaita Vedanta philosophy, that can't be because now you've got a, a, a duality between the absolute truth and the energies of the absolute truth. Uh, in my lineage, it's described as it's inconceivably one and different. But in Shankara's Advaita Vedanta, it's just one. And therefore, you have to have a completely different explanation as to how the world appears to have come into being, even though it never really did. And that's where you get um, the illusory superimposition of the world mm -hmm. on Brahman. And a, what I consider to be a kind of tortured, uh, logical... Uh, gymnastic <laughs> that's required in order to describe how a philosophy of absolute oneness depends on two tiers of reality, a higher Brahman and a lower Brahman. And right away, I asked the question, how can a philosophy of oneness have as its foundation a stipulation of two-ness, higher and lower level Brahman? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so this is where intellect and critical thinking comes in when we engage in svadhyaya, trying to understand the true nature of the self. You know, it's, uh involves a, a, a fair amount of critical thinking uh, to get to uh, epistemology. How do we know something? By logic, according to Patanjali, it's uh, by um, direct observation, uh, verbal testimony, and logic. What do you see? What does yoga? What do sages and tell yoga you. wisdom texts tell you? Right. And what makes sense? Right. You know, there's four reasons. Four reasons we might not understand something. Um, one uh, is that uh, we're not smart enough. I can't read Einstein's uh, general and special theory of relativity. You know, I. I I get through the first couple of pages and almost hang on, and then he trots out a Lorenz transformation, I'm done. Right. So I'm just not smart enough. Uh, we might not be pure enough in our heart. We might not uh, be, you know, what we know depends on our state of being. So our state of being might not be such that we can get access to knowledge. Um, you know, just like uh, a bug in my sink does not understand that I'm trying to help it when I try to scoop it out of the sink. It, it just doesn't have access. Its state of being doesn't allow it access to a, the same level of knowledge that I have. Um, someone may have uh, explained it to us wrong, so we don't understand it. And then the fourth reason is it doesn't make sense. 
we're trying to make sense of something that inherently does not make sense. Right. Therefore, we can't understand it. So I want uh, our friends out there in podcast land who are trying to understand yoga philosophy uh, and think that they're not smart enough or pure enough to uh, understand it to also consider the possibility that either someone's explaining it to you wrong or what you're trying to understand doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It, it, just consider that I possibility. That. that makes me feel very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me feel very, very good about all this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, well, it's it's well, challenging stuff. I think that I think the kind of one thing uh, to kind of end on is that um, there is a lot more to yoga than just you know, your asana practice. There's a lot more to yoga than just your meditation practice. There's a lot more to yoga than just maybe your devotional practice. There's a lot, there's, there is so much out there. One, one person in one lifetime could, could not possibly go through it all. And that like, and what it really is, is an invitation to like, go learn more. And then wherever you go, like have confidence that you're, you're on your path. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Don't try to know it all. Go on the path that you find that makes sense to you and follow that. Like try not to try not. Yeah, to bouncing around from path to path will yeah. will not help. Arjuna even asks in the Bhagavad Gita, "What if I don't complete this path that you're describing to me? Is it all big, stupid waste of time?" And and Krishna assures him, "No, no, there's never any loss on this path. You keep uh, you keep going, and you pick it up where you left off next time." Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Um, so uh, yeah, we're gonna end there. Um, it's lovely to have you come in today, Ari. Yeah, it was great. Thank you very much for having me. This was really fun. You're welcome. Absolutely. Um, you've been listening to the uh, the DC Yoga podcast, um, and uh, we're gonna sign off and uh, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Take care. <laughs>